Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a terrific guest with us today to break down President Joe Biden's recent Middle East trip. The great Ehud Ya'ari is with us. Ehud is a longtime Middle East commentator and correspondent for Israeli television, currently at Channel 12, and the Lafer International Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Ehud is also the author of several books on Middle East politics, including, in my opinion, the classic in the genre, Intifada, which was published in English in 1990 and written along with his frequent collaborator, the late Zaev Shif. Before we get to the conversation with Ehud, just a few quick thoughts of my own regarding the Biden visit. I think overall, expectations were fairly limited for the visit. No big diplomatic breakthroughs were expected. So even within this lowered bar and these lowered expectations, I think the visit can be deemed a success. No major faux pas or accidents or surprises really happened. Uh, Far from it. Biden and his staff were in command of the proceedings the whole time. And when unplanned developments did take place, like Biden's moving embrace and long chat with two Holocaust survivors at Yad Vashem, or his handshake with Bibi Netanyahu at Ben Gurion Airport after uh, literally fist bumping everyone else right before, all of this likely worked in Biden's favor. I think the big deliverables from the last few days were arguably one, Saudi Arabia allowing overflight rights to Israeli civilian airliners, uh, a move viewed as a baby step toward future normalization, uh, future normalization that will arguably take time. Uh, Number two, the signing by Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid of the Jerusalem Declaration, a long document reaffirming the strong and special U.S.-Israel relationship across a a whole host of issues, uh, including Iran and its nuclear program. Uh, Number three, Biden reaffirming that he was in favor of a two-state solution along the 1967 lines with agreed land swaps, although Biden did say twice publicly that this would likely not happen in the near term. Uh, Like in most things Palestinian-related on this trip, I think the U.S. didn't want to make life difficult for Lapid in the middle of an election campaign. Uh, There was also obviously an economic and civilian aid package announced by the U.S. and Israel. For the Palestinians, uh, things like work permits, housing permits, uh, funding for the East Jerusalem Hospital Network, 4G, etc. And number four, and perhaps most importantly for U.S. purposes, the fist bump with Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah, a move aimed to reset U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Final point, as others have pointed out, we'll likely only be able to judge whether the Biden trip was a success or a failure in the coming weeks and months, i.e. in retrospect. Whether Saudi begins to pump more oil, whether Iran nuclear talks succeed or fail, and what Washington and Jerusalem do next uh, in either scenario, and whether the Palestinians are okay with waiting for a political process to be restarted, or if they take matters into their own hands, these are all open questions. Uh, as the kids say, TBD, to be determined. Let's get to Ehud Yari. Hi, Ehud. Welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. Nice being with you. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, we should say right off the bat, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Ehud is a friend, a colleague, and a mentor. Uh, but that's not the only reason that he's on the podcast today. Uh, he's also with us because he's obviously been covering the Middle East now for quite some time. 
And so I thought he'd be a great guest uh, to come on this week to take stock after President Biden's visit to the region uh, over the weekend. So Ehud, I wanted to start here. You've seen presidents come, you've seen presidents go. What did you make of this recent visit by Biden? Uh, did anything really big jump out at you, uh, whether the American choreography of it all, the Israeli reception, the Arab response in Jeddah? What did you make of it? I think, Neri, that uh, unlike uh, previous presidents like Trump, like Obama, like uh, George Bush, uh, Biden and his team came this time to the Middle East without an agenda without some uh, high, uh, bombastic dreams of remaking the Middle East. They came to do business. It was a transactional uh, uh, visit. And that is why I believe that to a, a great extent, it was successful, not entirely, of course. Uh, the main point for me was the demonstration of warmth and friendship uh, to Israel. Not because the Israelis are uh, happy to see that and feel that, but because of what it, uh, because of the message it carries to the Arab world and Iran. Trump is gone, a democratic president, the warmth uh, of the relations with Israel remains, maybe even intensifies, and they are wondering whether that means, for example, that Israel will be getting uh, now sooner rather than later some of the uh, heavy equipment, uh, military equipment, that Israel wants to get uh, for the eventuality that it will have one day to act on its own against Iran, like the heavy uh, buster bunkers, like the refueling planes, uh, etc. Second, I believe that Biden has managed, was not easy, and it costs him, but he has managed to reset relations uh, with Saudi Arabia, uh, which is very important uh, in itself. I don't think that he has uh, received a firm commitment to increase uh, fast the uh, uh, export of oil. The Saudis are talking about 3 million barrels a day in 2027. That would be an increase of 1 million and a half barrels, uh, and it will take time. Uh, but I think that Biden, in a meeting with the nine Arab leaders in Jeddah, managed to um, put in place the early uh, uh, base for a regional um, defensive system, not an Arab-NATO, not a Middle Eastern-Israeli-Arab uh, alliance. This is not in the cards, but a system which allows cooperation and integration of some of the uh, uh, equipment under CENTCOM under the American command uh, in the Middle East. So I believe what we are going to see is the emergence slowly of a system under CENTCOM, under American umbrella, in which uh, 
uh, Israelis and Arabs are cooperating. And the first sign was the decision by uh, Biden and uh, MBS. They had a meeting of three hours, not something ordinary. The decision to uh, establish joint uh, naval forces in the Gulf of Oman and in the Red Sea. This is just the beginning and others will join. Okay. So I wanted to unpack a few of the themes that you raised right off the bat, Ehud. And really this increasing and growing Arab acceptance of Israel, which to my mind is, is historic. And we also had the announcement by Saudi that it's going to allow Israeli overflight rights uh, to, to the Far East, which I know is an issue uh, near and dear to your heart, Ehud. Um, and also the fact that the Palestinian issue, rightly or wrongly, has been, dare we say, marginalized. In your long experience covering this region, did you ever expect to see many of these things happen, uh, especially absent a peace deal with the Palestinians? In your mind, is this really the beginning of, uh, sorry for the, for the term and their cliche, a, a new Middle East? Uh, it's a different Middle East, uh, Neri. I must uh, admit um, that uh, I was uh, hearing uh, uh, privately ex-Prime uh, Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu speak about his effort to go this way, that is, to get peace with, the, with some of the Arab states ahead of the Palestinians for many years. So what we are seeing, whether one likes Bibi or not, uh, what, what one is seeing now is... Uh, the implementation of a vision uh, that was there at least six, seven years. And it has other components except, uh, apart from the Arabs, like the Muslim countries of uh, the Sahel in Africa, uh, Indonesia and others in, in uh, East Asia, uh, etc. About the, the Palestinians, I think what was striking in the Biden visit was that uh, uh, President Abbas in Bethlehem gave him the, the regular traditional speech of a Palestinian leader. Nothing new. And he, and he again uh, referred Biden to the so-called Arab Peace Initiative, the Saudi Peace Initiative in 2002. And next day, there is a joint communique in Jeddah between Biden and King Salman with no reference whatsoever to the Saudi peace initiative. That was dramatic to me. Uh, it was telling. I think we have also to bear in mind that uh, Mr. Abbas wanted badly to visit uh, uh, Saudi Arabia before Biden came or during his visit, and the Saudis gave him a firm, no-nonsense, negative answer. So when Biden is now suggesting, uh, I have to, to be more careful, when some of Biden's people propose now that the uh, PA uh, will join the forums of the Abraham Accords, like the Negev 
Forum. Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, Emirates, U.S. Uh, that they join as uh, observers of, or in some capacity like this, uh, I see that as a potentially serious mistake, which would mean that you plant a mine under the discussion table. The reasons that the Americans uh, have raised this is that because, and, uh, and rightly so, they would like uh, uh, the King of Jordan, Abdallah II, to join the Abraham Accords Forum. And the king is telling them, well, I need to be to have the Palestinians somewhere around. I hope they can get over it. Uh, we are not yet there. And just on this issue, do you think there's a way to actually leverage the Abraham Accords, the Negev Forum, the growing Arab acceptance of Israel to precisely make progress on the Palestinian front? Do you think there's a way to kind of connect the two? Absolutely. Uh, yes, and this is what, but it will take some time. I believe mm-hmm. that the realization that the Arabs are no longer willing to live with a, and accept a Palestinian veto over their relations with Israel, this realization is going, I can't tell you when, but is going to force whatever, any Palestinian leadership, to uh, 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 rethink its strategy. They realize already now, and I hear it a lot in private conversations with people in Ramallah, uh, they realize that it doesn't work anymore. They cannot stick to the old slogans, and at one point they have to come if they want to regain Arab support, they have to come with a more sober, more sensible proposal for how to proceed uh, with Israel. Because otherwise, an American president like Biden would come, would throw at them uh, two, three hundred million dollars, will uh, express his empathy, will stress the need for dignity for the Palestinians, but we'll say also that it's not the time to discuss uh, a permanent agreement. Like like Biden very much did uh, last weekend. And it should be mentioned, I think, that President Abbas Abu Mazen uh, doesn't seem personally to be quite there, that he still raises the Arab peace initiative uh, in his public remarks with Biden. Uh, it's almost kind of disconnected from reality, the reality of the Middle East today. Yes, the Palestinians are stuck uh, in the past. I don't want to define whether they are stuck in the mid-90s or uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, You know, many people in the Palestinian leadership that uh, uh, are all the acquaintances of mine, they are complaining about it. Um, And I also think that improving the conditions in the West Bank, um, um, more freedom of movement, uh, uh, more uh, building permits, uh, more workers in Israel, uh, 
easing the the traffic on the uh, Allenby Bridge to and from Jordan, etc. They are all very important, but uh, they do not uh, carry uh, real hope. And it, it it is the cooperation between Israel and the Arabs that probably under U.S. Uh, leadership can uh, bring about further on some formula which the Palestinians will be willing to uh, consider. At this point, Mary, the point is that if you talk to the UAE leaders or Saudi Arabia leaders or even Egyptian leaders, they don't want to hear now about the Palestinian issue. They don't want to, to, to stick their fingers into this mess. Let Israel deal with it. We're going to get to the Palestinians again in just a minute, but I wanted to tie up the Israel-Saudi angle. Um, in your opinion, how should we understand this normalization process between Israel and Saudi? Uh, the private position, I think it's very clear, it's heading towards normalization and growing ties. And we saw that uh, with the overflight announcement uh, over the weekend. But at least publicly, like you alluded to, at least there's... Uh, you know, some nominal expressions of fealty to the Palestinian track and the need for, for progress on that front before full ties with Israel are actually, are, are actually made official. So from your understanding, do you think that full normalization with, with Saudi, like we saw, say, with the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, won't happen until there is at least some progress with the Palestinians? Uh Typical uh, Saudi diplomacy. Okay. They will, they will keep saying that there is no normalization until the Palestinian issue is resolved somehow or the other. And at the same time, they will keep making moves towards Israel, like allowing flights to and from, from uh, Israel over their territory which makes, as you know, a guy like me extremely happy because soon I'll be able to fly, as I need to, uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, 17 hours. It's exactly the time it takes me to fly to Los Angeles from Ben Gurion. It's a new era. The Saudis, they are, there is much more in the pipeline. Much more. I want to underline it in the pipeline of gradual moves uh, of de facto normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia than is being currently reported in the press. Some of what is being discussed, in some cases already agreed in principle, are very important projects. Uh, I don't think that the Saudis uh, are going to stop it. They are going to uh, maintain a certain pace, not in a hurry. Uh, And they are not uh, very fond of big banks like the Abraham Accords with uh, UAE or Bahrain. And note, please note, Neri, 
the Israeli chief of staff is now in Morocco, General Kohavi. Morocco, the Moroccan royal family and the Saudi royal family have very close ties for many decades. I don't know any Saudi prince uh, with self-respect who doesn't have uh, some palace in Marrakesh or uh, 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 Casablanca or Fez. Uh, quite a few of them with Moroccan wives, uh, etc. The fact that Morocco publicly, we had chiefs of uh, staff say, uh, in Morocco before, but publicly uh, visit Morocco uh, tells me something about the Saudi reaction to that, which I'm sure was positive. Right. And of course, from the very beginning with the Abraham Accords, uh, the notion I think well-placed was that the UAE and definitely Bahrain wouldn't have gone for that big bang normalization with Israel if the Saudis weren't uh, on board and gave it a green light. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you can add to that, Nari, that there are at least four other countries that are, you know, walking along the swimming pool with their bazers already, <laughs> ready to to jump in. And uh, it takes a phone call from, uh, in my language, it takes a phone call from Abu Ali, Chief of Saudi General Intelligence, in order to get it going. That's... It's not my impression, it's my information. Very interesting. Uh, Ehud, on the issue that you mentioned earlier about this budding regional defense architecture, which I think, fair to say, it's now in discussion and primarily geared towards a regional air and missile defense system. Uh, here in Israel, it's very fashionable to, I guess, name check You know, this new Middle Eastern NATO uh, against Iran primarily. But on the flip side, you have the UAE and Saudi and a few others in the region actually holding talks with Iran and perhaps uh, with an eye to improving ties with Iran. So how should we understand the Arab perception of the Iranian threat? Uh, it's not one-to-one -one like we see it here in Israel, is it? You know, the, the, the Arabs... I think uh, the best example is MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed of UAE, are spreading their bets now. They are not entirely sure that the U.S. is still there and will keep being there the way Biden said. We will not uh, allow Russia, China, Iran to become hegemons in the, in the, in the Middle East. But uh, so spreading uh, uh, the bets means that uh, to take a, uh, an example from uh, Las Vegas, it's uh, some of them are at the roulette table placing bets on every single slot, <laughs> right. Iran included. There will be normalization of relations between most of the Arab states and Iran. UAE is already sending ambassador. Egypt in talks. Jordan would like to uh, do that. 
uh, Saudi Arabia, we are already into the fifth round of uh, preliminary discussions with the Iranians. It will happen. But what kind of a normalization it will be? It will not be uh, uh, the antrum to uh, some friendship, alliance, uh, great cooperation. No, it will be formalization of diplomatic relations, some trade, and uh, not much beyond. And it's very convenient for them, for the Gulf states, for example, uh, to do that. And at the same time, under the uh, uh, roof of uh, CENTCOM, General Kurila, the new commander, was just here in Israel, uh, to um, build a new structure of cooperation, uh, exchanges, etc., uh, between them and Israel, because it will all be CENTCOM. It will not be an Israeli-Arab NATO. In the Eastern Med, we have the East Med organization, which started as a gas forum, but now has a military di- di- dimension with joint uh, drills, both naval, air force, sometimes commando, Greece, Italy, uh, Egypt, Israel, the Palestinian Authority are all in it. Cyprus. That's the one end of the Suez Canal. And on the, on the southern end of the Suez Canal in the Red Sea, you have the Red Sea Council initiated by Saudi, Saudi Arabia. So far, Israel and the UAE, ah, UAE is also in the East Med, yeah, as observer. But in the Red Sea, Israel and the UAE are not yet part of the Red Sea Council. I think they should become part uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And now, with the decision between MBS and, and Biden to have some sort of naval naval force, uh, combined naval, naval force in the Red Sea, it's beginning to acquire a military dimension. Further south, beyond the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb, the Gate of Tears, we are uh, watching the possible emergence of the Quad uh, with a military dimension. India, Australia, Japan, US. And now, during Biden's visit, you had the the, the uh, I2U2, India, Israel, UAE, and the United States as the Western quote. So you have a chain of, it's not alliances, a chain of uh, regional uh, uh, frameworks which hopefully will get bound together over time. Uh, under CENTCOM with and under CENTCOM and bordering NATO, with NATO members as part of it. Uh, that's, if you ask me, what is m- my uh, modest vision for the region is something like this. And all these regional, kind of sub-regional frameworks under CENTCOM's auspices and with input from NATO, do you think all of this, and in addition to what Biden said on his trip here, do you think all of that will be enough to... Uh, 
to allay Arab concerns. You know, obviously the big, the big ask from primarily the Gulf, but not only the Gulf, is that, uh, you know, the U.S. remain here and that uh, they want to know that the U.S. is dependable. So do you think Biden and his administration did enough, I guess, over the past week to, uh, to maybe ease some Arab concerns? Well, trying to understand the mood in America, sensitivities, Democratic Party, I would say, if uh, the Biden administration stays in northeastern Syria, the way they are, not too many troops, in the base in Tanf and the Jordanian border, in few, very few uh, bases in Iraq, and maintain the profile they have now in the Persian Gulf, that would be enough. I would add to say that even if they cut the number of uh, planes and troops that they have in bases in Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, that would be uh, okay. That means the U.S. is still there. It will take a long time before the Chinese are here, not as uh, uh, trade partners. Uh, Russia doesn't have the capabilities, and everybody in the region knows I wonder which Middle Eastern country is going to be uh, uh, the next to acquire major Russian weapon systems after they saw um, how they uh, performed in uh, in Ukraine. And, and by, by the way, Mary, we have to remember the poor performance of the Russian mm-hmm. army in Ukraine is partly significantly a product of the tests to their forces and new weapon systems in Syria since September 2015. They are paying the price of thinking that fighting, uh, you know, groups of rebels with minimal arms, almost without any happy heavy weapons, uh, has taught their generals and pilots how to fight better. In Ukraine, it looks very different. Right. It's a lot harder to fight against uh, a motivated and well-equipped army like the Ukrainians than uh, bombing uh, bakeries and hospitals in Aleppo, in Syria. A bit more difficult. Um, would, thanks for raising the issue of Russia, uh, because we did have an interesting and intriguing announcement uh, on the eve of Biden's visit to the region by Jake Sullivan, uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor, who uh, I think almost out of the blue put out the report that uh, Iran was set to provide or was thinking of providing uh, attack unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, to Russia. Um, and today, actually, I think Putin is is in Tehran. We're recording this on, on Tuesday. So, A, what did you make of this announcement by Jake Sullivan? And I think for our purposes, could this could this impact Israel? Say in Syria, if Russia starts reciprocating uh, and providing arms and military support to Iran, Hezbollah, and and other proxies in our neighborhood. Yeah, uh, I think that the uh, U.S. has uh, proven beyond doubt on Ukraine, for example, that they have very good intelligence when they want to. 
So I take very seriously what uh, Jake Sullivan says and others. Uh, yes, the Russians would like to have Iranian drones, and I'm adding, they are looking at the, at the drones of the Shahed series, especially those, the heavier ones that can do, that can fly 500 kilometers kilome- or more. So I'm sure the Russians won't. But I have a few problems with it. Number one, the Iranian drones are not as good as the Turkish Bayraktar II employed by the Ukrainian uh, forces. And before that, by the Azeris in the war uh, with Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh. Right, and very successfully. Yeah. Number two, I am not sure the Iranian uh, military industries have the capacity in a relatively short time to produce the hundreds of drones that Russia is apparently asking for. Big question. Number three, let's not forget almost all of the Iranian uh, UAVs are equipped with Western engines. They need to get them. Their attempts to uh, build the Iranian engines for some of the drones were, to put it mildly, not entirely successful. So I would say if the Russians uh, want to buy, I'm sure they do, they need it. Uh, Can the Iranian uh, provide uh, what they are asking to deliver uh, over a short period, I am not uh, sure. From Israel, the point of the, the question is, if there is an arms deal, uh, a reverse arms deal, are uh, Iran selling weapons to Russia, then two issues. One, would the Russians be open to Iranian requests to start modernizing their ancient air force, ancient navy, an ancient fleet of tanks? Question mark. Second, would the Iranian uh, place a condition on such a deal uh, in order to see different Russian reaction uh, conduct vis-a-vis Israeli Air Force raids against Iranian shipments and its installations in Syria? I don't know the answer. I admit that I am less concerned about this second point than many others in Israel. And the reason is, I don't think it's very likely that Mr. Putin wants to pick a fight with Israel, to have his uh, 20-odd remaining uh, uh, planes in in Khmeimim uh, airbase near Latakia, uh, engaged in uh, dogfights with Israeli pilots, in F-35s, etc. So the bottom line is the main question, will we see the Russians providing uh, Iran with, for example, Sukhoi 35s? 
So it is it is a possibility, but you have your uh, your doubts. Yes, I I think we have they, even if they announce a deal, which I doubt they will. If they announce a deal, it's it's a matter of how long it's going to take, and how many uh, UAVs are going to be supplied, and what types, etc. It's not that we are going to see uh, next week hundreds of uh, ready-made Iranian drones being flown on cargo planes to Russia. Okay. So something to keep an eye on, but not imminent. Um, Ehud, final question on Biden's visit and the reverberations from from the visit, uh, the Palestinian issue an issue uh, that is near and dear to both of our hearts. There's, I think, a sense or at least a narrative in certain quarters that, um, you know, this is the lowest point ever for uh, the Palestinians' diplomatic and regional standing, uh, the lowest point ever for the prospects for for peace, or at least the resumption of peace talks. Um, I have my doubts about this. these narratives. Uh, I think... There are other points in even the not-so-distant past that uh, were a lot more problematic, I think, uh, from the Palestinian point of view. But, but given your long, your long experience, especially on this, on this issue, how do you assess, let's say, the Palestinians' uh, uh, political standing right now and the standing, I'd say, of the peace process as a whole? Yeah, thank you for coming back to the Palestinian issue. Um, I believe that we have to act uh, with a sense of ur- urgency because I do not see a very uh, um, streamlined succession process when the day comes in the Palestinian Authority. I think the risk of uh, further fragmentation of whatever remains of the PLO is really there. I think Hamas is building a civilian political presence through a a chain of footholds uh, all over the West Bank, universities, unions, etc., 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 without, of course, giving up their dream of uh, reestablishing the network of underground military uh, cells, which indicates to a guy like me that we shouldn't wait. I know that uh, 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 Mr. Abbas's uh, uh, parents uh, live beyond 100. And sometimes you get the impression that in, in his own mind, at 87, he's just a mid-career politician. <laughs> but he's not. No, and you not. could tell when he stood next to Biden that he's getting cortisone for something. Hmm. And his face are swollen. Right. We need to, to, to do few things now. I don't know that we have or will have the right government to do that. We have to uh, keep with, with, with active measures the slogan of the two uh, states for two people alive, 
Keeping it alive means you don't go and swallow everything you can in Area C. You don't build in E1 between uh, Jeru- uh, East Jerusalem and Malaya Dumim. Uh, you don't do several things. Uh, I think we have also to uh, take action if we have the government who is willing to do that against the illegal outposts uh, that are getting more and more and to start reducing to the point of curtailing construction outside the uh, the security fence the wall uh, allowing the Palestinians to do more in area C in parts of the Jordan Valley etc but at the same time insisting that for God's sake the Palestinian Authority for once will stop to operate as a patronage system using an ever-expanding public sector to spend the money of the donor states, but they begin to invest serious money and serious economic plan in order to promote the economy and raise the standard of living. We can't go on with Israel with, I don't know, $50,000 per capita per annum and the West Bank with uh, three or 4000 per capita per annum. It's such an imbalance that it cannot uh, sustain itself. I agree with all those points. Uh, essentially, keeping open the political and territorial possibility of a two-state solution and also for the Palestinians to get their own house in order. Uh, economically and also probably politically. Uh, just to follow up on on the point you raised earlier, Ehud, when you say fragmentation in a post-Abbas scenario, what do you mean? Do you mean fragmentation within Fatah? Do you mean just the loss of control on the ground in terms of the PA government and the people? Do you think it's more Hamas taking advantage and mobilizing its cadres and forces. What, what do you mean by fragmentation post Abbas? All of this. I think uh, I have doubts uh, that Fatah can remain a cohesive, unified movement uh, the morning after uh, Mr. Abbas. Uh, I think already today you see the PA and its security organs, people, especially in Washington, uh, make unbelievable exaggerations about the security forces. Many of their uh, 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 troops, policemen, whatever you want to call them, are just half-time. The rest of the day, they go to uh, tend to their shop or to their farm, etc., uh, and they are losing control. They have lost control already over almost every single refugee camp in the West Bank, over poorer slums in cities like Nablus, Jenin. They lost control 
to the tribal, uh, uh, the big tri- tribal uh, uh, clans of Hebron inside the city of Hebron, not too much is left. Okay. Uh, on that uh, less optimistic note, uh, we also have to say that we... We in Israel Policy Forum and also my own work, obviously, uh, are keeping a very close eye on the security situation on the ground and the cohesion and effectiveness of the Palestinian Authority security forces, uh, as you know very well, Ehud, uh, from uh, my past work. Uh, I wanted, with our remaining time, to transition, with your permission, uh, to a more personal, I guess, conversation uh, about your own career, Ehud. Uh, You are a longtime Arab affairs and Middle East correspondent in Israel, uh, going back, I think it's fair to say, to the late 60s, early 70s. And it's a unique role, isn't it, uh, explaining the broader region and the Arab world to Israelis. So I wanted just to get uh, you on the record. How, how does one become an Arab affairs correspondent in Israel? What was your path like? Yeah, um... Larry, you have to to uh, to allow me to to emphasize one one thing, which is not professional. I come from a family, a big family. If we had a Mayflower family in Israel, it would be a Mayflower family. Uh, and my roots are in the village of Metula, the northernmost point of Israel, uh, surrounded from three sides. By Lebanon, and now on, the three, on the all three sides, you have huge flags of Hezbollah. I grew up with Arabic, with Arab neighbors, like the family, everybody. So it was mixing with Arabs uh, it's, it's, it's was part of me. And I can tell you stories about my family. There are books on them. Uh, so I was always curious. And at the age of 10, I came to my late father and I said, I would like to learn Arabic properly, not from the street kids. And he said, yes. And ever since, I remained on, the, on this track. Uh, my dream was, if I can confess, to become uh, X-15, uh, our men in Kuwait or something. <laughs> But they, they told me, the people who have to make do, those decisions, they told me, you have blue eyes, you cannot do it. <laughs> and uh, when I was uh, studying Middle East, of course, and Arabic and Farsi in the university, um, I had to work for my living. I started at uh, a newspaper, which no longer exists, but then was a very important newspaper, the mouthpiece of the Labour Party of that uh, that period. Davao. And then, uh, uh, yeah, and then the Arab Affairs correspondent uh, had to retire. Uh, and they were looking for somebody to replace him and didn't find Uh, so they offered it to me. And there I was. And then the next was, uh, you know, next was radio and next was television and to this day. And explaining the region 
to the Israeli public. Uh, I think we talked about this, uh, I think a couple of years ago now, but in your opinion, was there more interest back then with regard to the neighborhood and the neighbors uh, than there is now? Do you think there was, I think, more coverage back then relative to the present day? Absolutely. Um, I think the second Intifada, 2000, killed not just the Israeli left in many ways, but killed the interest of the Israeli public. We see in my uh, uh, television network, by far the biggest in Israel, we see the ratings every day. When there is an item on Palestinians, which is not terrorism or some Jewish guy being stabbed, uh, etc., but it's just a pure Palestinian, uh, Palestinian story. Rating drops. Uh, in my time, in my quote-unquote heyday, when I went uh, uh, illegally, by the way, to Egypt or to Lebanon uh, and some other places, there was huge interest. There was huge interest. I'm telling younger uh, correspondents, aspiring uh, to to cover and become Middle East experts, I said to them that journalism today is not what it used to be because of social media. And the days of broadcast television, like the networks uh, here now in Israel or in America, are numbered. Uh, So I was lucky to be a part of it when television, in Israel at least, rose and became the dominant uh, media outlet, when relations with the Arabs were at the center of attention, whether it was wars, 73, 2006, 82, or whether it was peace, Sadat, King Hussein, the Abraham Accords, uh, etc. But I don't know. If people younger than me, some of them are beginning to take my place, with my blessing, of course, are going to enjoy that same, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the kind of career I could have because of the circumstances. And the circumstances have changed. And in terms of, uh, I guess, Israeli public or the Israeli society's understanding of the Palestinians, what was one thing that you always tried to, I guess, emphasize to your readers and listeners and viewers in the past and, and also to the present? What was, uh, I guess, a big takeaway that you always tried to kind of emphasize in your reporting? I think the Israelis, uh, most of them, including on the left, where they pay very often lip service, to the issue, don't understand that what happens to the Palestinians happens to us in every aspect, in every way. And this is why it is important. And this is why we have to know. And this is why we have to to keep uh, curious and interested. But because of the attitude of the public as a reaction to the uh, 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 wave of terrorism already in the Second Intifada, 
Tele- television, for example, or the newspapers are less interested in covering Palestinian society, Palestinian politics. The politicians are aware of a, a diminished interest in those issues, so they become themselves less interested and they sort of subcontract dealing with the Palestinians to this or that general in the IDF general command and to the security service. This is exactly what is happening. And it's not good. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, we should also mention that uh, there's a similar problem also in the international media and its coverage of, of the Israeli-Palestinian arena where uh, the Palestinian, I guess, domestic issues, economic issues, societal issues are uh, uh, are not covered uh, at all, or at least that well. Uh, it's only when there's an escalation in terms of security that there's a lot of interest in the Palestinians, and then uh, that fades away once the escalation is over. Um, Ehud, final question to you. Uh, you've had the good fortune of interviewing uh, some interesting people in your long career, uh, Anwar Sadat, Hosni Mubarak, Bashir Jamayel, uh, Yasser Arafat, Bill Clinton, to name a few. What, from your own perspective, was the most interesting or impactful of these interviews that you've gotten, or the one that you're most proud of? Um, it's, it's easy for me because the the peak of my career, the way I see it, was when I went to Egypt and uh, Prime Minister Begin and Foreign Minister Dayan, at the time, 77, demanded from President Sadat that he sends me back and they wanted to put me on a, on a, on a trial for contacting enemy agents, uh, going to an enemy country, etc. There was no peace yet. Sadat has been to the Knesset, but nothing else. And uh, they ordered Israeli television not to to transmit the uh, satellite uh, transmissions that I sent from Cairo. Israel television went on strike, took two, three days, Begin and Diane gave in, and then the director of uh, Egyptian television tells me, the president wants to see you. And they drive me. To cut it short, they drive me to his palace in a nice black limousine. And the president, Sadat, says to me, who are you? I said to him, Mr. President, as you know, satellite feeds cost those days enormous sums of money. And it's not my mother who is uh, paying. She's a simple teacher. And since then, I had... Uh, total access to the president, numerous interviews, many conversations. In many ways, he was uh, the man I was impressed with uh, politically more than anybody else. And I'll give you one anecdote if you want to use it. I asked him once privately, Mr. President, uh, in the Camp David Accords, you have ignored 
the advice of uh, your foreign minister and other uh, counselors to insist on uh, uh, inserting a clause on Israel's alleged nuclear arsenal in the text. The president looked back at me, you know, with his pipe, with the white handkerchief, looks at me and he says, because the Jews will never use it. <laughs> that was Sadat. <laughs> Terrific. Um, Uncle Lee, thank you so much for the time and the insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll have you on again uh, to talk about further developments in the normalization process and, and regional affairs. But thank you. Thank you again. Always with pleasure. Thank you, Nehru. Okay, that was Ehud Jari. Many thanks to him, as always, for his generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening.